1: All right, hey, good to have you on board as we launch yet another hour of Wrong Think, and welcome to the ranks of the Wrong Thinkers. By the way, if you would like to become an official Wrong Thinker, let me uh, let me clue you in on something. That'll give you some incentive to do so. Go to the website, the dot and you will see a little button right there on the landing page that says Join the Wrong Thinkers. Now, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to subscribe. To the podcast, I'm asking you to subscribe to my website. And what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks, at least uh, through the, through the month of September, is uh, collecting the names of those who have uh, signed up to become wrong thinkers. And at the end of this month, I will be uh, drawing one of those names to win 500 rounds of nine millimeter ammunition. Now, if you're not a shooter, you probably are like, "Well, you know, okay what's what's the big deal?" But if you were listening when I uh, interviewed uh, Spencer uh, Spencer Worthington from HSL Ammo last week, he very generously came back and said, hey, I want to do something for your listeners, Brian. I want to offer this 500 rounds of 9mm ammunition. You can give it away as you see fit. And we thought, well, hey, maybe this is the, this is the best time to, to go ahead and Make it, uh, make it uh, you know, a little bit fun, but, uh, but we'd like to ask you to, to be a subscriber. Now, look, you can also be a supporter of the program, too. We have a Patreon page. Uh, you, can, you can donate if you choose. But you don't have to donate in order to subscribe or in order to become a wrong thinker and in order to be in the running for that ammo. So, knock yourself out. Tell a friend. Maybe tell a couple of friends. Have a little party out at the range (laughs) after you win. Very exciting stuff. Hey, and something else. I, I have to tell you this just because this is another very exciting development. As of today, this program is now being carried on yet another phenomenal media outlet. It's the Fed by Ravens Media Network. Fed by ravens, referring, of course, to the story of uh, Elijah from the Old Testament. I don't know if you remember this story, but uh, there came a point where Elijah, who was speaking truth to the people, became so unpopular for speaking truth that uh, he literally had to flee to the wilderness. Otherwise, they were going to kill him. While he was in the wilderness, what sustained him? God sent ravens, which brought him food, which brought him nourishment during that time. And so if, if you think of this uh, network as kind of a, an unexpected source of nourishment, maybe it's spiritual or intellectual nourishment, a little encouragement to get you through the day, that's what Fed by Ravens is all about. You can check it out for yourself, fedbyravensmedia.com. Again, fedbyravensmedia.com. So happy to, uh, to be partnered up with them as yet another place where you can hear this show as well as a lot of other great content um, that, that really offers nourishment from unexpected sources. All right, I think I've covered most of the... Oh, no, there's one more thing here. I also want to thank FireSteel.com for being a sponsor of the show, as well as the Staples-Turner team at, at uh, Patriot Home Mortgage. So appreciate their willingness to help uh, make this program possible. And uh, with that said, let's dive right in. Now, you know, if you're a longtime listener of this show, I, I really like to uh, encourage you to keep a healthy sense of skepticism about government. For some people, this is a natural, but you'd be surprised how many people were uh, brought up to believe, hey, come on, man, government's here to help you. It's here to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, and therefore we should always, you know, give it the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure it's well-intentioned, even if sometimes it can be a little bit clumsy. Well, (laughs) I guess it's easy to keep that attitude if you're not the one on the receiving end of some of that clumsiness. But I have a story that gives you the perfect example of why a healthy sense of skepticism is necessary. And it's the story of Yuri Raffaele, whose home was stolen from him over an $8.41 tax debt. Now I've talked about this, it's been a couple of years since I brought it up on the show, but the Michigan Supreme Court just issued a decision that delivers a win for Mr. Raffaele. It was him versus Oakland County And he had his house stolen from him over a tax debt. This article was published yesterday on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. David Dearson is the author. He starts with a quote. You have a situation where people owe $8 and they lost their house. How is that equitable? In a recent unanimous decision, he writes, the Michigan Supreme Court confirmed what fee readers and anyone with an ounce of common sense, for that matter, always knew. It isn't equitable, and that's not too big a surprise. You could hear the incre- incredu- incredulity in Justice Richard H. Bernstein's voice when he posed that question to Oakland County attorneys at an oral argument last November. So here's some background for those who aren't familiar with the case, Raphaeli versus Oakland County. It concerned Michigan's practice of foreclosing on people's homes to satisfy small tax debts, and then pocketing the resultant profits leaving the former homeowners with nothing. Yuri Raffaelli for example owed about $8.41. That's about the, actually that's the total he owed, $8.41, roughly the cost of a Chipotle burrito. To get that pot to get after that pocket change, the government took his house and sold it for $24,500. And they kept every penny for themselves. Now I'm going to slow down here for just a sec cuz I, there's a part of me that really hopes that right now you're hearing your pulse thumping in your ears at the thought that a government entity could do this to a homeowner, $8 and 41 cents, but they took his home, they foreclosed on it. They sold it for 200 or for $24,500. They seized it and then kept every penny for themselves. The practice is called home equity theft, and in some form or another, it's the law of the land in 12 states. In other words, the law gives legal cover for officials to do this. But as David Dearson writes, thanks to Michigan Supreme Court's their July decision in Raffaele, Michigan is no longer among those states. And the opinion they put forth is a very forceful defense of property rights. Even the Magna Carta, the opinion noted, prohibited tax collectors from holding on to the excess property of debtors. And the same principle has always been true in Michigan, even though it was violated by the state's tax code. Quoting celebrated legal scholar and former Michigan Supreme Court Justice Thomas M. Cooley, the court reaffirmed that the right to private property is a sacred right. It was the old fundamental law springing from the original frame and constitution of the realm. And the court also took care to eviscerate the government's defense of home equity theft. This is the part you need to pay attention to. Oakland County argued that taking Mr. Raffaele's home and keeping the profits was a legitimate exercise of their taxing power, a favorite argument among defenders of home equity theft in other states, too. Now, the court recognized that while the taxing power may be used to adjust the benefits and burdens of economic life to promote the common good, home equity theft is something else entirely. It requires some taxpayers alone to bear public burdens, which, in all fairness and justice, should be borne by the public as a whole. That language from the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Armstrong v. U.S. defines the quintessential takings violation. With these considerations in mind, The Michigan Supreme Court saw the government's argument for exactly what it is, an exceedingly poor attempt at disguising a physical taking of property requiring just compensation as an arbitrary and disproportionate tax. So the ultimate takeaway is victory for justice, fairness, equity, and common sense. Government shall not collect more in taxes than are owed, nor shall it take more property than is necessary to serve the public. So victims of home equity theft in Michigan finally can get some justice. Mr. Raffaele, for example, may now return to the trial court and fight to get just compensation for the theft of his property. Others in a similar station, like Erica Perez, from whom the government stole more than $100,000 of equity to satisfy a $114 debt, are now well-positioned to get back what they're owed as long as they do so within the right time frame. And the article points out another bright spot is that counties in Michigan will no longer be incentivized to foreclose homes over tiny debts. It has been frustratingly common for Michigan counties to fail to give proper notice of delinquency, for example. And it's not hard to figure out why. Until now, they stood to gain a windfall at the tax debtor's expense. Because they can no longer reap huge profits from minor mistakes, we can hope to see fewer foreclosures overall in the future. Now, the article notes none of this bodes well for the treasuries of the dozen other states that practice home equity theft. The Michigan decision isn't legally binding on those states, but much of its logic applies with equal force. I gotta take a quick break. We'll come back and visit this briefly. Just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, I want to mention that our show is brought to you by our friends at the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Go to staplesmortgage.com. Just exactly like it sounds, staplesmortgage.com. There you will find all the information necessary to get in touch with my good friend, John Staples, and his lovely wife, Heather. And they can take care of you. Whether you are looking for a refinance, a lot of folks looking at that. A lot of folks are moving away from places like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. Trying to get out of the big cities, trying to get away from some of the madness. So, if that's you especially if you're coming to my home state of Utah or any of the other 22 states where Patriot Home Mortgage works, then you should, you should probably talk to them, especially if you're going to be buying a home. And by the way, welcome. Just don't bring any bad habits like big government, right? StaplesMortgage.com. Again, it's the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are one of our fine sponsors here on The Brian Hyde Show. So I've been sharing with you this article from the Foundation for Economic Education about uh, this, this gentleman in Michigan, David Dearson, writing about the case of uh, Oakland County v. Raff- Ria- Raffaelli v. Oakland County. <clears throat> the guy whose home was taken over an $8.41 tax debt. And I know there's somebody out there. I'm not asking you to call in and be that person, but someone out there is like, well, you know, if you let somebody slide even on $8.41, pretty soon everybody will see taxes as optional and they'll have a bunch of scoff laws and nobody will pay their taxes. But can we at least, I mean, look, I and I, it's, it's fine. Somebody wants to take the contrary side and defend what the government did. They took the guy's house. They sold it for $24,500. They pocketed everything above the $8.41 he actually owed, and they were good with it. So I'm just asking, could that not have been handled in a better way? Why did it have to become a court case? And I'm grateful that the court actually came down on his side. But this is still legal in many of these other states. There were 12 states in which this is still a legal way to take equity from people. Now, David Dearson's with the Pacific Legal Foundation, PLF. They're working to implement legislative reform and avoid such an outcome. Montana enacted such a law last year, but the longer that you wait, the more likely your state would be to end up in court. This is kind of like asset forfeiture, at least in that same vein. I'm sure there's someone at at the state level, you know, some attorney whose job is to Try to make this sound like, well, this is actually a very noble and necessary enterprise, and the, the public is better for us being able to do this. And it may be legal, but it sure doesn't pass the sniff test for what's right. As David Dearson says, the victory in Michigan's worth celebrating, but the work is not done. Pacific Legal Foundation has launched a nationwide campaign to end home equity theft in the states where it's still practiced. And he says, we intend to restore justice to every last one of them. And if something like that didn't chap your hide, so to speak, I don't know what it would take. And and I don't think I'm being overly sensitive here or even overly critical for that matter. I mean, I have an 85-year-old mother. And she has reached a point where sometimes it's, it's a little tough. She, she has to really work to keep her books straight. Those of you who have, you know, aged parents, you understand what I'm talking about. There comes a point where mom comes to you and says, I need to put you on my bank account. I need to make sure you have a power of attorney and that you can help me with my finances. And thank goodness for the good kids who are willing to step up and do that. But can you imagine something like that? Their home is paid off. They make a a minor mistake, you know, an $8, even $114 mistake. And some government entity comes after them just because, well, it says here in the law we can do it, and takes it away. I don't know. Not to be too dramatic, but kind of have to believe there's a special place in hell for the kind of people, the kind of bureaucrats who would do that. And then go home at night congratulating themselves and, well, you know, I've done my job and I've done it well. It just seems extremely self-serving. And if you're someone who works within county or city, municipal, or even state government, don't be that person. I know there are good people out there. I don't want to, you know, tar and feather everybody or, you know, paint with too broad of a brush that, yeah, these are, you know, they're all just looking for an excuse to steal. Because I don't think that's the case. But wouldn't it be better to not have such laws in the first place or such legal um, wiggle room in the first place? Human nature is such, and and, and we've seen this with the uh, the Gesundheit Führers, as Eric Peters calls them. The people who are given just a little bit of authority, and it just goes straight to their head. I'm here to enforce that you should wear a mask when you come into this store. And by gosh, they they get power hungry, drunk on power over such a minor thing. And I think all of us probably have some point at which we would we would uh, unrighteously exercise that bit of authority. Uh, the, the saying I like is, somebody got their first taste of authority and they liked it. It's kind of hard to wrestle that little inner tyrant into submission. But stories like this illustrate why it's really in our best interest to do so. Otherwise, small instances of injustice can become the norm. And even you'll find people who will defend it. That's pretty shameful. All right, shifting gears. By the way, phone lines are open, 801-331-8113, if you'd like to join the conversation. How many people are having this challenge, maintaining a friendship, a partisan friendship, meaning you and your friend are on different uh, wavelengths, during an election year, I bring this up because I have had two friends in the last 24 hours reach out to me, and I, I don't know that uh, you know they were they were calling me for advice or anything. I don't know if I could even give them good advice, but both of them expressed a deepening concern with how difficult it is, it's becoming for people to talk with one another. It's wearying, and their concern is that. collectively, we are just losing our minds. We're talking past each other. Everybody's become this one-dimensional caricature that that doesn't even resemble a human being. You probably sense this. Maybe you see it. Maybe you see it in the workplace or you see it in, in your neighborhood. I mean, let me put it this way. Who dares to put up a political sign on their lawn right now? Now, some people may feel pretty safe. Well, I've got my Trump sign out there and I feel completely vindicated that I'm okay to do it. But I promise you, there are places in this country right now where putting up a sign on your front lawn would be inviting some form of vandalism or harassment, doxing, whatever it may be. But to me, the the greater tragedy isn't that there are people out there who are consumed by, you know, these partisan demons. You know, they're, they're politically possessed. To me, the greater tragedy is there are people whose family relationships as well as friendships are starting to suffer because they can't, they can't make it work when they encounter someone, even a close friend, who holds a differing point of view. So I thought we could talk a little bit about that. There's a great article by John Tuttle. I saw this uh, published on the American Institute for Economic Research website as well as the uh, intellectualtakeout.org website. How to Maintain a Partisan Friendship During an Election Year. And I like that he goes with some very prominent examples, public examples, of people who have done just this. John Tuttle says, Throughout literary history, without concern for era or genre, there have been a slew of authors who happened to strike up long-lived friendships with fellow writers. Tolkien and Lewis, Emerson and Louisa May Alcott, Twain and Ulysses S. Grant comprise a few exemplary pairs of writer friends. But he says one relationship among literary giants is often forgotten. It involved two British writers who had equally grandiose personalities, though rather opposing perceptions of the world. One was an atheistic socialist, the other a faith-based conservative. One a science fiction novelist, the other a columnist, poet, and mystery novelist. We'll talk about this on the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This
1: is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, lines are open, 801-331-8113. Just want to uh, tout once again, uh, congratulations to the uh, Fed by Ravens Media Network. FedByRavensMedia.com is the website. Go check it out for yourself. You'll see my smiling face, or at least my smiling uh, logo there, and uh, find some great food for thought as well. By the way, our show is brought to you by FireSteel.com. This is the final day of uh, a special offer that they have been running for the last month, which is simply this. You go in, you check out any of their, uh, their magnesium fire starters, or their ferro rods, or uh, their, their gob sparks, These are the uh, fire-starting tools that can replace thousands of matches, hundreds of lighters, and they work under just about any condition. And you should have one in your 72-hour kit. You should have one in your emergency or survival preps. They're affordable. They're very portable. They make fantastic gifts, and they are a great sponsor of this program, which is why they have been offering, for the last month, a special to my listeners. Go to their website, firesteel.com. Look at the videos. Look at what they have to offer. I'm convinced if you if you understand preparedness and self-reliance, you'll be like, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. And the price is right, too. Plus, when you go to make your purchase, plug in my name as the coupon code, B-R-Y-A-N. That's all it takes. They'll take 10% off your total order. Great way to save some money and have some peace of mind in knowing that you could start a fire if you had to, even under really adverse conditions. All right, back to the article here from John Tuttle. This is about how to maintain partisan friendship during an election year. And specifically, he's going to talk about uh, a couple of uh, English writers, H.G. Wells and G.K. Chesterton. Now, I hope you're familiar with both of them. He talks about how these two men respected each other despite their clashing dispositions. One, an atheistic socialist the other a faith-based conservative, one a science fiction novelist and historian, the other one a columnist, poet, and mystery novelist. He says that uh, they were able to communicate on polite terms, something that modern debaters could take a cue from. Their charm matched with their tempered persistence, made for appealing, intellectually stimulating conversations, or at least they thought so. Chesterton was rather known for his open affiliation with individuals whose beliefs he firmly disapproved of. Wells stood just as firm in his own ideals. He openly stated he was immoral, referring to his sexual tendencies, though on what rationale he based this is uncertain. But on one occasion, Wells is noted for saying, If I ever get to heaven, presuming there is a heaven, it will be by the intervention of Gilbert Chesterton. Chesterton likewise held his friend, Wells, in high esteem for his willingness to explore varying realms of philosophy. The columnist once hailed Wells as the only one of many brilliant contemporaries who has not stopped growing. Now, Wells insisted on the theory of eugenics, a concept that may have likely influenced the degenerated depiction of humanity's future in The Time Machine, which was published in 1895. Wells was quite involved with eugenics theory, though the concept would eventually show signs of societal damage. Chesterton challenged this mentality of Wells and others in Eugenics and Other Evils, published in 1922, with responses such as, "...the the eugenic optimism seems to partake generally of the nature of that dazzled and confused confidence, so common in private theatricals, that it will be all right on the night." Nevertheless, John Tuttle says, in the coming decades, eugenics proved itself to be a driving factor behind the master race ideology of Nazism and the subsequent Holocaust of World War II, which took the lives of millions. In many of his fictional novels, Wells explored a bestial dimension of humanity, while Chesterton viewed the human person as made in the image of the divine. It comes as no surprise then, John Tuttle says, that we see that when we notice Wells promoting Darwinism and see that Chesterton is unexcited by the idea of macroevolution. These two men could not be more different. But their relationship displays an equilibrium in the faculties of listening to one another and having mutual respect. The result was a shared understanding. The aura of this friendship is something that ought to be envied by modernity especially under the current political climate in the United States. The current state of American politics, John Tuttle writes, is plagued by partisanship and polarization. No surprise, right? It's been building for years, and as the opposing sides drift farther apart, the less they perceive as having in common. Policymakers and citizens continually grow staunchly more unwelcoming to the ideals of their opponents. Moreover, he says, they begin to look at each other in disgust, associating a dirty name with the people of dissimilar political agendas. These unassociating parties develop what is commonly referred to as their own political bubbles. Now, the phenomenon or this phenomenon might be uncomfortable to discuss, but John Tuttle says it's happening. Analysts and critics from varying positions have frowned upon this ongoing contrasting dissemination and have warned about its damaging consequences. According to Pew research, Polarization is included as a defining feature of American politics today. A 2013 report from the Breakthrough Institute points to rampant and severe polarization within Congress and within various states at that time, claiming this as detrimental to the functionality of liberalism. Additionally, both national political parties struggle with partisanship within their own ranks, which becomes particularly evident come election time. This not only inhibits individual ideological goals, it makes it very difficult to come to an agreement on weighty issues. Currently with regards to policy making, the polarization witnessed between parties is making it harder to deliberate on COVID-19 precautions and subsequent action. This is a case in which public safety has become jeopardized through the incapacitation resulting from polarization. Although just as an aside, I kinda welcome that sort of gridlock I would rather have politicians standing there arguing tooth and nail with each other and getting nothing accomplished than have them working hand in hand and getting a lot accomplished. Seems like when bipartisanship is the norm, my pocketbook and my freedoms suffer the most under those conditions. Now, there's also an increasing disassociation. John Tuttle writes about a mentality similar similar to that within policy is seen in voters. As noted by the breakthrough report, political differences cause apparent enmity between neighbors. Friendships are dissolved. Arguments degenerate into personal attacks laced with hateful rhetoric. And there are plenty of tweets to support this. As experienced by the American public, different beliefs both presently as as well as historically, have brought about societal strife, leading to belligerent yelling matches, physical antagonism, or worse. He says, we look around and it seems like no one can debate among friends. He says, I rather think healthy debate should be fostered between friends as it was in the relationship shared between Wells and Chesterton. A number of psychologists have looked unfavorably on polarization. Research in recent years undertaken by psychologists at universities like Stanford and Princeton has suggested that political preferences have become deeply ingrained social identities. These tests also supported an argument proposing political polarization as being more stringent than racial polarization. Yeah, I'd say that that seems to be the case as well. John Tuttle says it's clear polarization damages relationships, hurts society, and stifles necessary action. The biggest problem with it is that it severs communication and cooperation between people. However, the friendship that Wells and Chesterton enjoyed offers diplomats and debaters something extraordinarily superior to polarization, and that is a conversation. See, Wells and Chesterton had a bond, the likes of which have seldom been replicated in either the 20th or 21st centuries. The amazing thing is that in their encounters, they were not enemies at heart. Certainly each disapproved of many of the positions the other took. Their inner lives was, were comparatively as similar as a frosted cake and broccoli. But they did not let mere differences force them into immediate and unrelenting harshness, which is so typical of debates between people nowadays. They were fully themselves. They were open with each other. Even in their paper correspondence, the 20th century equivalent to tweets, they were quite diplomatic. They realized a belligerent inflection isn't going to get one's point across any clearer. And each knew that breaking a relationship would be of no benefit to either. Perhaps they shared something more. An adherent of Darwinism, Wells would have a difficult time denying that a lack of cooperation can lead to self-destruction. Cooperation is a key ingredient in the prospects of survival. Similarly, Chesterton, holding, his, holding high his Christian beliefs, recognized division as a breakdown of community. Perhaps this was something that each could not walk away from. Instead, they embraced it. Wells and Chesterton not only recognized the dignity of one another, they also listened to one another. Each internalized the other's perspective. This kind of relationship is something human beings should seek to emulate. In both American politics and sociability, we need more unbashful, polite friendships like that of H.G. Wells and G.K. Chesterton. So when we come back, let's take a few minutes and talk about how do you make that happen? Honestly, I think we make it harder than it has to be. If nothing else, because we came prepared with this flag, I'm going to plant this flag. I'm going to die on this hill. We tend to do that when it's really not necessary. Stick around. We'll talk about it just the other side of these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This
1: is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So this article by John Tuttle, which again, you will find in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Now, I know you're not a a fancy pants writer like H.G. Wells or G.K. Chesterton, but I bet you you have friends with whom you still can maintain a friendship even if you don't see eye to eye. I'd like to explore that a little bit as uh, as we move ahead here. Um, I know that, uh, look, it's easy to want to correct people. I've been the guy who was guilty of this. Oh, there's someone wrong on the Internet. Why, I'll stay up until 3 a.m. just to make sure that we're I'm correcting what needs to be corrected. But there's something that happens when you lose that need to win. When you stop worrying about scoring a victory over, you know, the person that you're uh, disagreeing with online, and instead you simply focus on... Getting to know their point of view without trying to change their mind, and that's the key right there. If you can let go of that need to change their mind, that's when people actually will start to listen to each other. But this means you've got to you've got to be similarly open-minded and and uh, you know be willing to to understand that uh, they can't change your mind and you shouldn't be changing their mind. Just look for that broader perspective. It takes a bit of practice, but it can be done. And the thing you'll find is uh, you may be able to plant seeds. And when they come to a realize, realization that, hey, there's something to this um, on their own terms, they're far more likely to accept it than when you successfully argue them into submission. At least this has been my experience. And this is something I've been trying to put into practice for about the last five years. I see it work. And by the way, I give credit to Paul Rosenberg for having the, uh, the brilliant mind that's first suggested it to me. He says, "If you've already, uh, if you if you have paid the price to understand what truth is, you've won the toughest battle, and it was with yourself. You don't have to prove something to somebody else." All right. That said, let's go to the phone. Kevin, welcome to the show. Good to have you on board.
2: Hi, Brian. Great to be on the radio. Um, well, uh, yeah, in my own mind, I, I could go several directions. There's a person that I am friends with. I won't mention his name out here. But uh, we have a lot of firm disagreements But I think the thing that keeps us together, now we're not best friends, but we're okay friends, Uh, never have been best friends, but uh, I think the thing that keeps us together is A, we're blind, and B, we are both members of the National Federation of the Blind, fighting for the rights of blind people. I called in with an issue I'm dealing with a few weeks ago, Asked him if he could help me, and he said, Well, yeah, our politics are different, but I'm not letting that interfere with the rights of blind people. And yeah, I, I think that this can be done. What bothers me, though, is an experience I encountered in 2016, right before the election. Somebody needed a ride, and unfortunately, obviously, I couldn't drive, but I could at least give this person an Uber ride or pay for her Uber ride. I couldn't afford to pay for it where she needed to go, but I could at least have the Uber car drive her to a track station to get off. And We talked about politics. I told her I'm voting for Donald Trump. She said she's voting for Hillary. And Oh, are are you still going to give me that ride? Yeah, I'm not going (laughs) to let politics interfere with that. that. That's dumb. And she even thanked me a year later she even said, "I didn't think you'd give me you pay for my ride." Oh, yeah, I'm not. I'm human. I'm not going to let politics interfere with decency. It, it disturbed me, actually.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, if, if I, I hope, I hope she was being somewhat tongue in cheek. But did she legitimately expect legitimately expect you to tell the driver, "Pull over, get her out. You're on your own." No. Wow.
2: Yeah, this is uh, this conversation. And actually, I found out in the conversation. Even though she was voting for Hillary and I voted for Donald Trump, we had some things in common. As far as political views.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a good example.
2: I mean, if we came to this point, I don't think we would have been in this point when I was growing up.
1: Uh, back in the 80s. Do you? Ah, You know, I, I didn't understand things quite the way that I understand them now. So, yeah, I, I don't know. There's times when I've been very rigid in my thinking. And some would say, well, you've just gone wishy-washy with the years. But I don't think that's the case. I think it's more a matter of the the more I have come to understand and uh, have paid the price to understand what I know. And I don't have all the answers, but uh, i committed to certain truths and so I'm comfortable. And if someone can offer me clarity or if they can offer me a better way of looking at things, hey, I'm very happy for that. But uh, I don't like to be forced. And I assume other people don't like to be forced. And so that's where I draw the line. I, I don't want to force them and I don't want them forcing me to, to have to toe a yeah. certain line.
2: It just seems like, uh, you know, being blind, I grew up around a lot of Democrats. Even though I grew up in Ontario, Oregon, it's pretty conservative. But you got to remember, <clears throat> I was surrounded by a lot of teachers because of my blindness. I had teachers teaching me braille, teachers teaching me math as a blind person. So even in fourth grade, I was fully aware that I was surrounded by Democrats. It just seemed like there was a time where we could discuss opposition politically and still like each other. And I, I I remember that very well, even in fourth grade. But it just seems like we've moved beyond that now. Or maybe it's just me, but it just seems like we can't have the discourse that we did back in 1990 when I was becoming aware of political issues.
1: Interesting observation. Kevin, I appreciate your call. And I, I would uh, I would ask the follow-up question of this. How did it happen? Where did we... Where did things change? I know it's easy to point you know, fingers, well, the media has taken a more partisan tone, and I really do believe it has. It's, it's much more openly um, hostile to, uh, to anything that falls outside of what it feels is approved opinion. And this is one of the reasons why you, know, you look at outlets like CNN, and it's just it is just straight-up spin anymore. And for some people, it's like, no, that's the spin I like. So they're telling the truth. It's Fox that's got the spin. I think there's spin on both of them. And if there's anything that I would encourage you to, to invest in, it's sharpen your own truth-detecting abilities. That is where you are likely to find the, the greatest amount of not only good information or at least uh, a more factual view of the world, but you're also going to find some peace of mind. And I say that because many of the media outlets and I'm I'm just going to look I'm going to point the finger at, at some of the heritage media out there, the corporate media. They understand that the two things that really get our attention that will cause us to click on a particular story are fear and anger. Those are prime motivators. And if they can tap into our sense of fear which you look at the headlines. I mean, come on, look at what they're talking about today. Well, it looks like there's, the, there's you know, a, a big spike coming in COVID. And, oh, what was the one I heard today that was just so breathless? Well, f- the first death has been traced to the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. Really? 600,000 people gathered together, and now they have traced what they are saying is a death to uh, COVID-19 from someone who was at the rally. Yeah, I would take those odds. I mean maybe they they want to get my attention tell me what was the, what was the death from uh, well I don't know motorcycle wrecks anybody die you know either in route 2 or from what was uh, what was the rate of heart disease it's just feeding that fear and of course anger is the other thing and this is probably the one I'm less susceptible to the fear more susceptible to the anger because sometimes they'll put stories out there that just they know this is going to this is going to get it under Brian's uh, skin. It's gonna, it's gonna make him mad, and this is one of the reasons why I choose to limit my uh, intake of media to a bare minimum. I don't really care. I don't feel like I'm missing out if I'm not, to, you know, ingesting whatever you know mainstream or or corporate media is talking about on a given day. Now I might see a story that says, "Oh, that the the headline looks interesting," but I'm willing to do my own research, and wherever possible, I try to go to the source. Because I find that by going to the source, I'm more likely to get a a more accurate depiction of what happened. By the time it's run through all the various filters and the various spinmeisters, and there are people who are just really good at spinning things and using sophistry to, to make things appear to be a certain way, it's pretty tough to draw what one could call an informed conclusion. And you have to wonder, too, what am I not being told? How incomplete is this narrative that I'm being fed so again bottom line is what we need to do is become very very well versed in thinking for ourselves now that includes a willingness to engage in wrong think in other words whatever the official narrative is don't be afraid to say nah I'm not gonna go along with that yes they'll huff and puff and call you names but it's worth it to stand on your own two feet